0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any booking, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered. To find out how your organization can offer your customers more peace of mind for their purchases, a better buying experience, and you can create a new revenue stream for your organization. Visit Booking Protect at www.bookingprotect.com. My guest today is Kate Mirakovsky. She is the Head of Strategy with Supercool, a design firm based in the United Kingdom. And I wanted to have Kate on to talk about a bunch of stuff. Um, I don't know that we talked a whole lot about IPAs, but that was sort of the joke going in and we didn't touch it all about discounts, which was another Twitter back and forth we had before we recorded the episode. What we did talk about though, was marketing and digital strategy and the humanity that needs to lay at the heart of everything you do. Um, Kate shared an experience she had and not a favorable one with the New York Philharmonic. We talked about, um, you know, how you can take your digital campaigns and make them more effective online. We talked about, um, you know, successes that organizations have had tying their development asks into tangible items that they're going to use. We talked about planning for the long term. We talked about the need and the willingness to be wrong. Um, We talked about a lot of really great stuff. And I think this is going to be an episode that you're really going to enjoy. And it's going to provide you a a much different view of digital strategy and what you should be looking for. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Kate Murakowski. I want to welcome my friend Kate to the Business of Fun podcast. Kate, what's happening?
1: What is happening? How are you, Dave?
0: Oh, I'm good. I'm good. It's um, Unfortunately for me, it's a little early to bust out the IPAs right now, but hopefully you're having one while we're, while we're having this chat. So I know that you share that love of IPA with like with me.
1: <laughs> you know, I did think about having a drink, but I thought, no, I'll save it for afterwards. There's something odd about you know having a drink on your own when the other person is just getting started for their day. So I decided to save it till later.
0: See, I would if the shoe was on the other foot, I'd be like, "Well, hold on (laughs) a second, while let me mute myself while I crack open my beer." (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I want to thank you for being here. I know you just got started at Super Cool Designs not too long ago, and Mm -hmm. I thought it was like a good time to you know catch up. And talk about some of the stuff you're doing, some of the stuff you got, uh, you've been working on, um, some of the ideas that you have. Because, you know, I think that stuff is great. Um, so I guess I'd like to start out with, I know you're the director of strategy now at Supercool. Can you tell everybody a little bit about what, what that means? Uh,
1: well, it means that I do a, mainly a bit of two things. So one of them is supporting our client strategies. So that is typically uh, their the meeting their business goals, helping them with their digital strategies. Um, And the other side of it is helping um, and developing our internal business strategy. So um, that means internally I look after many things, everything from um, the kind of tools that we develop within uh, our websites, um, managing projects, helping clients do great stuff, and also some slightly less exciting operational stuff uh, behind the scenes. It's super cool. So It's good. Supercool's quite a small team. There's uh, six of us at the moment, Um, and that is really great for me. It means I get to do a little bit of everything, which is really good fun.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I did not realize until we talked before we did this thing was that it's an entirely remote team, too, and I think that was actually really cool because it sounds like... And this may be like for the listeners a little bit out there, but I'm going to ask the question anyway: Is that you, you? You have a morning meeting every day, and it's a way to keep everybody on the same page and everybody kind of focused on working towards the, the shared goals. Um, what do you? What about that makes it effective for you? Because I think one of the challenges that everybody kind of deals with is making sure everybody's like on the same page and you know working towards shared goals, and. Especially in a remote situation, I mean, you know, to me it's interesting, and hopefully it's interesting to everybody else. How, you know how it, how it's done and why it's effective.
1: Well, the the morning meeting it's a really great way to start the day. It's for me it's very different working for a company where everybody is remote. I've worked in arts venues where obviously you're there in the thick of it um, most of the time and then I spent quite a while working at Spectrix which is um, a ticketing software supplier to the arts um, and we had quite a vibrant office environment there so this is the first time that I've done remote working and working from home full time and um, and that morning meeting so we're early birds we start at 8am every morning and everybody's on the same meeting um, and it, it's just a really great opportunity it means that you start your day saying hello and how are you to all your colleagues and we have a bit of a chat and find out how people's evenings were and you get to know people that way so you might ask about how somebody's rehearsal was because they're in a gear, in a band or you might ask a little bit about how a project went um, that they've been working on in their spare time. Um, and then it's also an opportunity we we kind of go around the room the virtual room and just chat about what it is we've been up to the previous day or um the last week or so and what are we going to be working on over the next the rest of the week so it's a really nice opportunity to get together and the luxury of being a smaller team means that we can do that very effectively it's one of those things that is a little bit trickier if you're if you're a team of 50 people Practically, you can't get 50 people in a room together and have a conversation around the table about what everyone's doing. Um, Definitely, one of the great things about it, especially from my point of view, is that I'm listening to what a back-end developer has been working on on the servers. I'm listening to what a designer has been working on for um, a new website. I'm listening to what a front-end developers doing. And that's really nice. It means I get to hear about everything that's going on across the different parts of the business. Um, And they get to hear what I'm up to as well. So that it, it's a really nice way to start the day and really keeps everyone in touch with everything that's going on. And it definitely helps push towards that kind of shared goal, um, mentality that we're all in it together and we're all working towards the same things.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for expi- explaining that. Cause I know that's more like, um, that's more of a project management thing than, than they, you know, necessarily an entertainment business thing. Um, but yeah. I, I do find, you know, affect, you know, effective team building to be something that, um, is necessary for everybody, so you know. So, mm-hmm. And I thought the way you guys handled it was, you know, very cool. You know, so mm-hmm. the, everybody gets together in one shared spot and has a has a little chat, even if it's only for a couple minutes. It's you know, it's really effective. But people don't come here to hear us talk about project management, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about we'll talk about fun now. <laughs> um, so one of the thing, one of the questions I wanted to ask about because I know now is. I, you read, you wrote a blog about your trip to the AMA. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: and one of the things I'm always curious about is marketing, right? I mean, that's sort of my my key goal. Um, and and knowing what you do with super cool now, um, I'm kind of curious about sort of your philosophy on making your website's homepage or like the buying journey on the website, a, uh, part of the marketing journey of the, of the, uh, of the buyer. And what I'm really looking for is I see a lot of websites that are not very good. I mentioned one before we started recording that I pointed to that I was like, Oh my God, this is awful. And I won't name it to protect the uh, guilty. Um, you know, can you give me a little bit of your philosophy, how you, you know, how you think about creating and designing websites so that like the journey is, you know, um, Kind of clearly laid out for a consumer, and it helps push them in direction and guides them in a way that is meaningful for the organization and helps them have a good buying experience
1: yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that we that we take into account so I mean we have um, my colleagues are very much uh, look after the design elements and how things look and how people interact with them. And the things that I tend to focus on really is the data behind what's going on and actually looking at audience behaviours and how are they interacting with what's already there and how is that influencing their behaviours from start to finish. I think the homepage on any website is a really interesting challenge. Um, And if you you look at it from the point of view of an organisation, Typically, it's the marketing team's job to have an overview and manage the website and what goes on there and and how it works. And they're usually under quite a lot of pressure from various departments in the organisation who are under their own pressure of certain targets. And everybody wants their bit on the on the homepage. So the hires team wants a bit about hiring the venue on the homepage and the development team need a bit about how to support the organization on the homepage. And then the box office wants frequently asked questions on the homepage. It kind of builds up and builds up and builds up. And I think what's really interesting is I, I work with a lot of our clients to, to encourage them to take a step back and think what are the overall business goals of the organization and what are the priorities not, as an individual teams, but as a collective, what are your priorities and what is it you're trying to achieve? Because when we look at the stats for those home pages, the number of people who are clicking on something like uh, food and drink or uh, hiring options are so small compared to the overall traffic on the site. I mean, we're talking less than 1% of people are going to click on the hire us section Whereas the majority of people are hitting your website and they want to book a show or they want to um, find out what's coming up or they want to book a course. You know, they want to engage with you um, basically around your your principal product as an organization. Um, so my philosophy really is to to encourage people to think about what the audiences are actually doing and what visitors to your website are trying to achieve. Looking at the data and using that to inform the decisions you make Um, and then from then on, we we have plenty of information that tells us how people like to make purchases. And obviously, we have some opportunities and some restrictions, depending on the ticketing system that we're integrating with and the kind of things that that can provide. Um, but, yeah, I think that the, the homepage is... It's really fascinating how home pages work and, and what people want to see on there. Um, it's a really interesting challenge to get it right.
0: Yeah, no, and, it's, and I like what you said about you kind of define it like well, what are we trying to achieve here, right? And that's sort of the core question I always ask when I'm working with people is like, well, what's success going to look like for us? if we are if we if, if we achieve what we're, we're we're trying to achieve here, how are we going to know it well you know how's it going to hit us in the face and and I'm going to speak for myself here even when I get people to tell me that and they explain it and we we are clear on it um they they still sort of don't get it you know into, they get it intellectually but emotionally they don't get it and then when I know when you're talking about having so many constituencies that you're dealing with and everybody's advocating for their little uh, silo their little piece of the puzzle you know mm-hmm. how do you how do you push back or keep everybody focused on the big goal because I, I you know speaking for myself i know that's a big challenge sometimes a lot of times is getting people to maintain a focus on the real goal how, how yeah. do you do that because it can go out of whack i know on a website very quickly
1: yeah i mean i think one of the biggest challenges to achieving that is The idea, especially in an arts organization, of how you how you communicate those high level business goals and how you manage targets. I think, you know, if I if I was working, uh, managing the bars in a venue, I would expect to have some kind of targets of what income those bars need to generate. And. There would be pressure on me to achieve those targets so naturally i'm going to put pressure on other people around the business to help me achieve those targets but i think what sometimes gets lost in an arts organization um in fact any organization i think is actually the combined targets so this idea that there's a bit of give and take so if we can push a bit more of the fundraising activity on the website Actually, there isn't so much pressure to make every penny you can through the bars or there isn't so much pressure to increase income from another area. And I think the organisations that do it really well and get it right are the ones who do think collectively and work together on those joint goals, which need to be really well communicated Um, I think something that's really fascinating and I've spoken to a lot lots of arts organisations about this especially when I'm coaching people on how to ask for donations at the point of sale um, I'll ask the box office team do you know what your organisation's accounts look like do you know what the goals are what the targets are do you know how much of your organisation's income is made up from ticket sales from secondary spend from hires from uh, donations from grants And the majority of the time, those box office team members have no idea. And the organisation produces a beautiful annual report that is sent to all the donors and the board members. And it probably is sent around the whole business. It's going to be a good few pages long. And the box office team don't necessarily think of that as something that they need to engage with. Um, And so they just don't have oversight. They They can't see the bigger picture. And I think that's something that can cause quite a few issues. Just this idea that not everybody in the organization really understands or has, has a vision of what the organization's goals are. And as soon as you get through that, as soon as you get people on board with those goals and communicate them effectively, collaboration across teams and teamwork becomes a little easier because you have something to work towards together.
0: Yeah, that's, I th- that makes a uh, beyond sense to me. <laughs> I mean because I mean I mean, because it's not uncommon to find that you know, no matter what or when you said it was, it could be any organization, this is true. This is what mm-hmm. I've found by working across you know in organizations all over the place is that most of the time we've specialized people to such an extent that they are almost incompetent at doing their job because they yeah. you, you need the the understanding of the whole picture to be really effective, right? It's you know, if you're asking a somebody at the box office to help with the donations, you know, and development dollars and they don't have any idea where the money comes and goes and you know yeah. and, and what percentages it comes, it's really tough for them, right? And you've actually you're doing them a disservice because they're going to look like they're they're gonna look stupid. I mean you know how there's no two ways around it and it's not their fault. And you know, so that's like a really a really key point. Um, you know is like everybody does need to get fed in on the goals and they need to understand why it's important. Um, I think, you know, and not in necessarily in the arts organization, because I don't know too many arts organizations that have these, but in some of the, you know, I think, especially in Silicon Valley here in the States um, mm-hmm. in some of the sports organizations, they, that's the move towards the chief revenue officer has been helpful because it's just like somebody who can help make, you know, pull like the marketing and the strategy and the sales teams all together. So everybody's kind of, you know, there's, there's somebody whose job specifically is to un- make sure that those all are working together. Um, yeah. you know, and I think it's really important because again, asking people for money is tough. You know, it's not easy, especially <laughs> and if you don't know why you're asking or what you're asking for, it makes it even tougher. Um, yeah. yeah so yeah.
1: I think, I, I think that the, the asking for donations at the point of sale is a really great example because teams who are, Partly terrified of asking, don't know why they're asking, don't know what they should be asking, will really struggle with it. But if you spend one morning coaching those teams and talking to them and listening to their concerns and why they're worried about it and providing the resources so that they can help answer some difficult questions, it totally transforms how much that team can raise and how they can talk to your customers about the fundraising and the charitable work that you do. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't take. Obviously, there's lots of ongoing coaching and support and um, guidance that that a team manager or team leader needs to do to keep that momentum going. But to initially kick it off, it's just a couple of hours of time and a bit of information. It It's actually really easy, but it's something that gets forgotten about quite often, I think.
0: And I think the interesting thing to me too is because I know you, you focus on audience behaviors as well is that I don't think people necessarily always understand how important some of, you know how some of these social cues and some of these you know small asks are you know how yeah. powerful they are in creating a you know number one if you're you know already buying a ticket and then you explain to somebody readily what the mission of the organization is and then you ask for like can you contribute to this mission, right? You know, the likelihood of you getting a donation goes up, right? And then if yeah. you and if you phrase the ask for the donation in a certain way, you're likely to get a donation. Then if you reach a certain level of donation, you make it so that it seems like everybody can give. Then the story becomes, well, I'm not the kind of person who gives the minimum. I give more. And, you know, all of a sudden you've created three or four or five touch points that not only get you more development dollars now, but it also starts to establish a relationship. With the, with the potential donor. Now, from an audience behavior and data standpoint, do you have like some statistics or like some case studies about some of the, you know, some of the ways that organizations have been effective in, you know, simple actions that have raised like substantial revenue or, or money for, for the organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of. There's a couple of organisations that I worked with whilst I was at Spectrix. So one that comes to mind is Brewery Arts Centre in um, Kendall, um, over here in the UK. And they did some really great work um, around coaching the teams to ask for support. And what was really exciting about that is one of the things the box office team said to um, the senior management team was they struggle because they worry about asking for something that's not tangible so they said, it's easier when, you know, we're starting out doing this, we're all a bit nervous, it'd be really great to have a tangible thing that we could raise money for. Um, and the head of development there went away and, and did some work and thought, well, one of the things that we really need to do is fix our lift. So we we really need to fix this. Um, and he managed to get match funding from the Arts Council. And so... It went from quite a nervous position where the box office team were unsure about what they were asking for and why they were asking, to the box office team being able to say, would you like to make a donation towards uh, fixing our lift so that our building's more accessible to audiences and it's being match funded by the Arts Council and with your gift aid, a £2 donation becomes £4.50. And that had a great impact and actually the great thing about that is that it set the ball rolling for them to talk a bit more about asking for support it got the box office team and fundraising team in the room together talking about the challenges why it's important why do they need to engage customers in that way which is really really uh, quite a transformation from where the team was before we started that project and um, another thing in terms of digital fundraising that i think is really exciting is um a project so super cool the super cool team did this before I arrived but it's was with Scottish Ballet where um last Christmas they did a campaign around sponsoring or dedicating a bauble. So you could buy a Christmas bauble, it's it's like a little Christmas decoration, the kind of uh, ball that you hang on your Christmas tree. Um, and it was all digital. So it was all online and you could click on the bauble and you could make your donation and make your dedication there and then and what was really interesting about them is that they raised um quite a quite a substantial amount i think it was a, it was over 10,000 pounds that they raised just before christmas um but they the average donation online was higher than the average donation that came in over the box office or via post and what's really interesting about them is that they used a really nice creative approach and something that was quite fun and interactive to create a digital campaign that engaged a few new donors got people who had already donated to donate again but they use that online environment as the catalyst i guess you could say to encourage people to donate which i think is a really nice way of using your website in a creative way and um, they're a really great team up there and what really comes across is how closely the marketing and fundraising teams work together and um, it definitely feels i i as I say, I'm quite new to Supercool, so I don't know them hugely well, but it definitely feels like there's a great, uh, a huge amount of collaboration there, and they're really joined up in their thinking of how they use their website to engage audiences and donors, which is really nice, and, and it means they're getting some really nice results as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that they were able to get more money from their online uh, campaign than they were from their physical campaign. Because, yeah. And because... If you take that along with the art center and Kendall, and you talk about the tangible versus the intangible, and online bauble is completely
1: <laughs> yes. intangible,
0: and, and it, so it's it's interesting to hear that they had such great success. Though I appreciate uh, the box office staff not be you know wanting to understand what's tangible, um, you know, mm-hmm. and I kind of uh, you know coach people through the idea that. You know, just because it's not real, right, just because there's nothing tangible, that doesn't yeah. mean there's not valuable. You know, the intangible is not valuable because a lot of times the intangible is a feeling and emotion, which can actually be much more powerful than, yeah. than the tangible yeah. thing. But I also like the fact, though, that, like, you know, coaching people through, you know, something that they can see and feel and touch, right, because part of it is, like, just to get people to give the first time is really, really yeah. difficult, and then once you have um, you have them in your ecosystem, it becomes easier to get them to stay there as long as you are continuing to add value and to create a connection and to develop a relationship. Yeah. Now, from your point of view, you know I, what are some of the effective ways that people can make sure that like some of this giving and some of these. Uh, purchases and some of these actions aren't just one-time things. How can you help make them sustainable and, you know, help, uh, I guess, eventually leading to a longer term, uh, more stable relationship?
1: I think, I think it's one of the most important things that the, the arts in particular really need to focus on the idea of retention and increasing engagement with audiences. It is so costly to get first time bookers through the door and, You know, if you just think about the cost in doing that, the advertising on bus stops or in local newspapers or doing leaflet drops, all that stuff just costs a very small fortune. Whereas once somebody has booked with you and you have, say, their email address or their postal address and they're happy to hear from you again, getting in touch with them is just so much more cost effective. And I think from my point of view, there's no there's no kind of one trick fix. To increase uh, engagement and reattendance, it has to be a full strategy that works across the organization, and it has to be something that has various different touch points. So the, the worst thing you can do is assume, and I don't know if this is going to um, create a bit of hate mail, but you can't just assume. I get it
0: anyway. Don't worry about it. I get tons of it. It's totally fine. <laughs>
1: this idea that the artistic product on the stage is so unbelievable and so powerful that you need to do nothing to get somebody to come back is it's just not going to happen um you know people are busy people have limited resources limited time limited money uh just you know there's a lot of drawing people's attention now and You can create the most magical, unbelievable, uh, life-changing experience inside that auditorium, but you still need to work hard at getting that person to come back. Um, And there are lots of ways you can do that. Really simple things like post-show emails, which people get in their inbox the next morning, um, making sure that when they're there in the building, they have a really great time, that your staff are really friendly and everything's easy to find and that you know, there's nothing that ruins the experience uh, from start to finish. Um, and I think one of the really one thing that I very rarely see that I would like to see more of is more connection between that uh, marketing and box office strategy of engaging new bookers again and the programming teams. And um, because it tends to be quite a linear process, you know, a show gets programmed, it gets given to box office and marketing to set up on the system and to market and the marketing team work really hard and they get audiences in, but it tend, it quite often stops at that point. And what would be really great is, let's say you have a show coming up that you know is going to have be a big hitter with first-time bookers. So you know that you're going to have more than your average amount of first-time bookers at that show. It should be that you have another show that is similar to market to those people in a decent time frame. let's say in six months' time, that you can tell them about the next day and so you can keep them excited. Um, it's that join-up between programming, scheduling and audience development that sometimes means things fall down and and don't quite work. It's very hard to market um, a show that, you know, a first-time booker who's come to your venue for the first time because they're interested in a, in a hit comedian you're not going to be able to well you might but it's quite hard to convince them to come to a Shakespeare production the next month whereas if you have another hit comedian lined up it's much easier to get them in and then once they've been a few times then you can start to push something that is a little bit possibly outside their comfort zone or something that they don't know you for um but it, it it's it's a strategy for me personally it's lots of small things that are all really easy to implement it it takes no time at all to implement post-show emails to set up a lapsed booker campaign for those bookers that have not been in the last three years or to set up something on your on your website or your crm system that recognizes a new uh, a returning booker and engages with them slightly differently these things are all quite simple to do um, but you have to do lots of these small things to have an impact, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the um, the big issue is that everybody is looking for the magic bullet. Yeah. And there's no magic bullet, right? It's, um, it's It's typically a lot of small things done consistently that yeah. make – you successful or not successful. I mean, that, that, that's at least been my experience. And what you, one point you brought up that I was really probably bears even more emphasis to is you, you specifically pointed out men and the fact that like, if you have a comedian, maybe you have another comedian coming in um, because it's going to be very tough to get, you know, somebody who'd never, ever been to the arts or to the theater before and comes because there's a comedian there to go out and, Book an entire season of Shakespeare, yeah. but the exposure thing is key, right? Because and and making it a sort of a focus of a long-term strategy is absolutely mm-hmm. ne- necessary. Because I, you know, I'm just thinking about myself right now, and it's like I did not grow up around the arts. I did not grow up in a household that was like at all cared at all about the performing arts and the theater. And it was through that exposure. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that I was converted, you know, and, and I think people have a tent maybe have a mistaken tendency to, to believe that, um, your taste in entertainment or your taste in consumption are fixed because mm-hmm. they're, they're not fixed. But it, the thing is, it does need a thoughtful strategy attached to it and something that is delivered consistently. Mm-hmm. And, I think if, probably if people don't only get the one thing from this whole podcast is the idea that it doesn't take much, right? Like setting up a, uh, an email that goes out to people the next day that talks about, hey, did you have fun?
1: Yeah. You know,
0: <laughs> you know, if you did, we got this thing coming up. You may be interested. You might like it. And it's not going to be 100%. Uh, you know, I, won't dis- I don't want anybody to think you're going to get 100% replies. You're not. But if you get – you probably knocked it out of the park, right? Because you can still keep marketing to the people even then, Um, you know, in in the CRM. And, you know, but the big one is make sure your staff is nice. I mean, mean, that should be like, you know, that's customer service is either, it's the most effective form of marketing, I think, you know, it's like, because if you have these emotional connections, these really great emotional experiences, and the person's just a jerk that you're dealing with that ruins the night for you. It's, you yeah. know, it, it, the focus there, it, you know, needs to be on that. Right. It needs to be every, everything you do should be focused on my, my God, I want this person to be wowed, to be floored by the experience. And I want to do everything I can to draw them back in. Yeah. So that they become,
1: I think it's, we sometimes forget the power of those human interactions when we're there in the venue I was talking to somebody recently, um, when I was visiting the Spetrix New York office, I went to see um, the New York Phil, and it was incredible. I, My passion is classical music, and it was amazing. But the main thing I remember from going to see that concert is the fact that when I walked into the building, you weren't allowed upstairs, there were no chairs left, and when you did go upstairs, there was pretty... Um, and obviously, this has to happen. There were um, quite rigorous security checks and bag checks, which has to happen. But the people doing it were quite rude. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, it's kind of, kind of ruined my evening a little bit. And I haven't even got into the concert hall yet. Nothing like nothing started yet. But I've arrived. There was nowhere comfortable for me to sit down and enjoy a glass of wine. Sort of got shouted at because I, I can't remember what you know. everyone was being shouted at. And and it just sort of ruined it. Whereas in in contrast, I went to a museum um, not far from where I live recently, um, and I was feeling a bit groggy that day, and it was a it was an excuse to get out the house. And I walked in, and the person who greeted me at the desk was so friendly, and they just had this way of making me feel at home in a museum. Um, they told me useful information, gave me a map, suggested where I should start, um, and then made a joke about it being a bit too early for the bar which it was um but it just completely transformed the whole experience and again that's something where I hadn't actually seen any content of the museum at that point i just walked through the doors but I had a great time and they definitely set that up for me to have a good time and it doesn't really cost anything to be nice to people
0: (laughs) that's that's (laughs) exactly right it costs probably less because the thing is is like if you treat people well Number one, you're you're, you're they're going to have a good experience, like you said. They're going to come back, so that saves you on marketing. You're also if the people are like happy to be there and they're happy to engage with people, your turnover is going to be less. So your your, your staffing costs are going to end up being less over time because you're not going to have to replace everybody. I mean, it's nuts. And then I and I feel bad hearing about your experience with the Philharmonic in New York because. I know that it doesn't have to be that way, right? I mean, I mean, I get it. New York's hustle and bustle, but that doesn't mean New York's filled with people who are grumpy and hate everybody. I mean, I lived yeah. there for a decade, and I would do plenty of nice people.
1: And you're not grumpy, so...
0: You know, you got me at midday, so I've had several <laughs> cups of coffee at this point. But, but you know, I
1: think, I think that the example of... Um, the New York Phil is really interesting because I totally understand why they have to do security checks. I don't begrudge them doing that. Um, and I get from practical reasons, I sort of get why they didn't open up the rest of the the kind of foyer areas. That was fine. But it was just the attitude of the staff. That was the problem. Had they been really nice, friendly staff, I probably wouldn't have minded the experience quite so much. It's the, yeah, being nice to people doesn't really cost anything and it can make the world of difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know who said this, um, but I'm going to knowingly steal some sort of (laughs) phrase here, which is that it's just way more important to hire for attitude than it necessarily is for technical skill. Because most jobs, um, you know, not all jobs, but a lot of jobs you can train people to do, but you can't necessarily train people to be good with people. I mean, that's, yeah. but, and that's really the key difference. And, and it goes back to something you said earlier too, about you have these magical experiences you have that, and then you fail to stay connected with people. Right. And it's the same thing here, everywhere along the line, the value chain gets either gets chipped that or broken. Right. And so then it's like the next person's job to uh, pick it up and try to put it back together. Um, and, it, and it really is a missed opportunity for a lot of, arts organizations because the thing is is what you're doing what you're selling is really powerful it really is an emotional thing it's an experience which um you know i don't buy i don't put a lot of investment into the idea that like oh people move as these big massive blobs of this that or the other but what people's spending habits show me is that people are investing more money and attention into experiences and if you don't if you're, not, if you're in the arts or if you're in sports or you're in, like, concerts and entertainment, anything that has something with some live component to it, and you're not capitalizing on that, because, I mean, you have the greatest thing going as far as these things go, by making the experience seamless and human, you're missing out on a great opportunity because you have exactly what people are showing you they want. Yeah. With, not with the, what they're saying they want, but with what they're spending money on. You know, yeah. it's really a missed opportunity. And and so I guess my next question to you then is like, as somebody who's heavily steeped in the data, <laughs> um, well, you know, because this is, this is a, and I'll tell you, I have a hypothesis here that, I'm, that I'll share, you know, is like somebody who's data driven, you know, how do you make sure that the people you're working with and the organizations you're partnering with don't lose or don't lose the humanity or don't let the... the The data drive all the decisions, or you know, they they maintain some sort of perspective on the fact that, like, they're doing business with other people. It's people um, serving people, and 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 the hypothesis that I'm going to share that you can feel free to bat down if if you think I'm wrong is that in too many places, and this is not just the arts, and this is not just sports, this is everywhere. I think are allowing data to define their decisions, not allowing data to be a tool to help them test hypotheses, so that like every decision is maximized according to data, but it's never, nobody ever questions. The idea is, are they asking the right question of the data?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I am a massive fan of data and the insights that it can provide. And, you know, we're really lucky. There was a huge amount of it out there from the Google Analytics stats to everything that's in your CRM system. There is so much data available. And it does give genuine insight into people's habits. I think, for me, the important thing is to always think about the the way that data informs how real people are interacting with you. So the data isn't just numbers. You know, if it says that... 0.2 percent of people are clicking on your visit link on your website you can't just scrap that link because not enough people are clicking on it you still need to have that information there because that is a few hundred people who are regularly not sure how to get find your venue or what to wear or whether there's food and drink and so i think for me it's about using data to help inform decisions but also that test element that you spoke about kind of test the hypothesis is really important. And for me, the, before you embark on any strategy, long-term project, um, you know, goal setting, you do have to have some data to help inform what it is you're going to do, but you also have to go back and revisit that data and re-measure what you're doing. Otherwise, it's you have this great start, but then you have nothing to give it any context. Um, and that's where that kind of testing and refining and measuring thing is really important. So a really interesting example actually is an organization here called Longbra Festival Opera that I'm working with, who are thinking of making some changes to their homepage. So they are a uh, annual opera festival um, and they it takes place in these beautiful grounds and the whole experience of going and having a picnic and dining is really important but they're not really sure at the moment what to do with the homepage. they're thinking of going in a more artistic um production driven look for the homepage, and so I've done some work with them on finding out actually who is using their website and what are they interested in um and there's some really interesting insights there I guess not so surprisingly a lot of the people using their websites uh, their website at the moment are brand new bookers um, and they are interested in what the experience is going to be like so they're engaging with the visit pages the food and drink pages much more than i would uh, expect to see in a typical theater website but what's really interesting with them is that they're using that information to help inform decisions But now that they have that benchmark, we'll go back to that. Whatever decision they choose to make with with a bit of help from us, we will then go back to that data and say, okay, is this changing behaviours? Is it um, making people engage with your website in a different way? Is it affecting how people spend their money or what they're booking? And the other thing, which often gets forgotten about when it comes to data, is the huge amount of information in your customer-facing team's heads, I think, you know, whenever whenever it comes to making decisions that are about your audiences, you can't really do that effectively unless you sit down with your box office team and front of house team and your bars team and your restaurant team and possibly your volunteers if you have them and just ask them what they think. They are the people who are face-to-face with your audiences and customers all the time and they hear everything. They hear the little niggles and grumbles that people don't want to write in a complaint letter but will go and tell their friends over dinner the next day. And it's really important to get that anecdotal um, uh, evidence as well as the data.
0: No, that that's really, really awesome because I think one of the things that you highlighted that I think people well, maybe are either scared to ask about or they don't recognize is that the fact that it's okay to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake you know, doing something digitally, it's not mm-hmm. the end of the world um no, you can cool. fix it pretty most of the time you can fix it pretty quickly right it's it's better to me it's better to test and refine and measure like you said and then make a change than it is to you know try to feel like i've got to create this thing that's static and permanent and in place yeah. because i think that's a real big problem for people because you know if you only have one crack at at the you know at the pinata for, to use some you know, something <laughs> a visual representation the odds of you busting, you know, you know, reaching your goal are are going to be very slim, I think.
1: Yeah. And and I think the great thing about working with digital technology is that you can be so quick and so agile in your experiments and testing things and refining things. And certainly one of the things I see quite often when I'm working with arts organizations is a little bit of fear because they think. I haven't finished this thing completely yet. So the post-show emails, for example, something that stops people from just setting those up and getting them going is they have this idea of what it should be, and that's going to take a little bit of time, and they're not happy with just doing 80% of that idea and giving it a go and seeing what happens. Whereas if they just give it a go and see what happens, they can do 80% of that idea, and they can refine it and test it over time. And when they do think they've really nailed it, it's actually going to be nailed. There's kind of, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% convinced myself about this, but I wonder if there's really much point in trying, even trying to nail it first time. Because if you do, then you haven't experienced any of the failures, you're not really sure why it's working. And you might have missed out on something that could be working better, but you never tried it. I'm not sure.
0: No, you you make a really great point because, and I, I'll use myself as an example here. Is I have a newsletter which anybody is able to, can have. They just email me, uh, Dave at DaveWakeman um, That I sent out. I started out. I was like, it's just going to be a plain text email, right? And I just wanted to see if mm-hmm. I sent the thing out, would people find any value in it? Would people read it? Would they react to it? That's it, right? It's got a couple. It's, I tell a story. It has a couple links in it. Um, that's as advanced as it got. It got. But the response to it has been tremendous. Um, for so many people, they feel like everything has to be super bells and whistles, uh, super um, every like you said, 100% complete. Um, you know, use my example. The thing was like really like thrown a pull out of a hat, and it worked very well. I mean, you know, it's, it's at one someday I will upgrade it. Maybe I'll even put a little graphic like a, like a logo or something on but I haven't needed to and I've received way more value from it than I could have ever imagined and I would guarantee that many arts organizations would find the same thing happened right it doesn't have to be perfect it just needs to be done
1: yeah (laughs) I think that's the thing I think you know having something is better than having nothing and if you're aiming to get it a hundred percent absolutely spot on from the very beginning chances are for a good long time you're going to have nothing because it takes time it takes time to get it hundred percent right um well then, let me ask
0: I, you this though is anything ever a hundred percent either that's the other question you need to ask themselves because <laughs> if it is please show it to me because i have yeah. yet to do anything that's a hundred percent
1: i think that's the really interesting thing about trying to aim for this perfection is that by doing so you miss out on so many other ideas and things that might work and actually you're not really you're not really testing anything or pushing the the boundaries of what you know and understand um, and and you can put yourself in quite a quite a precarious situation where you invest a lot of time and energy in doing something that you believe is 100 percent right and it just does not work but backtracking from that is really hard. When you think you've nailed it and it isn't working, actually admitting that to yourself and your work colleagues and saying, actually, I invested a lot of time and energy in this, but it just doesn't work. I'm gonna have to scrap it. That's really hard. And that's where you end up with systems or websites or parts of websites in place which are not actually effective, but everyone's a little bit scared of changing it because they're hoping that one day it will magically be effective.
0: Yeah. Again, another great another great example. And again, I'll, I have another one that would be very apt to everybody because this podcast is another example of that, right? If I had I, I waited for so long to do the thing because I was like, "Oh, well, I don't know if I'll do this. I don't know if I'll do that." And then I finally did it, and then people like really in, have enjoyed it, and they listen like way more than I I probably could have hoped for. But and and the key was just like understanding it's not going to be perfect, right? The first episode, if you go and download the first episode of this thing, it was awful. I was like, (laughs) I mean, I'm terrible in the thing. It's, um, you know, but if I hadn't done it, I would never get better. And it's the same thing with anything that anybody's going to do. It's, you you know, you're going to screw up. It's not going to be 100%. Um, The tools available to you today allow you to screw up and it not to be a catastrophic mistake because you can change it easily, right? You can, uh, it's isn't fairly cost effective to make changes now right once you have like the the backbone and the the framework of your system down um you know everybody makes mistakes you know i I want to see people try things a little bit more i mean that's just sort of my feeling um
1: yeah definitely and you know the the digital realm is the perfect place to try it you can switch things out you can change things on a whim you can give things a go and it's actually one of the few places where you can have a bit of fun with something and not have a huge amount of data to back it up and just see what happens the um the Scottish ballet fundraising campaign with their Christmas baubles is a really good example I mean they did have some background information and they knew that it was going to be um they kind of did a lot of uh, work around that campaign but it's a really good example where they thought, you know, we're going to do something that is fun and we're going to do it online. And it's not like building a whole new venue or a whole new concert hall. Or like we were discussing, it's not like moving to a new area without testing it out first. You know, it's easy. If it doesn't work, just change it. It's,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think if, it, if you just take the idea and with everything you try, you go, I'm going to try this. It might not work. You're going to have a lot more fun. And you know, you're working in arts and entertainment and live events. If it's not fun, go do something else because you're you're probably yes. gonna get paid better. <laughs> but, exactly. <laughs> I mean let's be honest. Right? Um, so Kate, where can I point people to find you?
1: Um well I am on Twitter and also LinkedIn. Um as we were discussing, I have a slightly complicated surname. Uh, but I'm the only one of them, which is good. So it's Kate Mroczkowski, which is M R O C Z K O W S K I. So on Twitter, I'm just Kate Mroczkowski. And to be honest, if you googled that, I, I think I am the only Kate Mroczkowski. So somebody will probably find me just with Google. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. Well, all right. Kate Mroczkowski. Really yeah, I'm getting better. <laughs> um, what nobody realizes is that, is that like I butchered it before we had to start over. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you so much for being here um, I hope everybody look you up um, you know I know I enjoy talking to you um, you know you, you've become a very good friend to me um, so I appreciate that so thank you for coming on the podcast
1: oh, thanks so much for having me it's been a lot of fun Dave thanks very much one more time I'd like
0: to thank my guest Kate Miratkovsky, for taking the time to talk to us today as always you can find me on my website which is www.davewakeman.com You can also email me with any questions, ideas, concerns, thoughts, whatever, at dave at davewakeman.com. As I mentioned in the podcast, I have a weekly newsletter called The Business of Value that I'm willing to send to you if you want to email me your email address at that dave at davewakeman.com email address. Just put newsletter in the subject line and I'll get you signed up. And finally, if you like what I'm doing on the podcast and you listen and you enjoy it, I'd love it if you'd subscribe on Stitcher or Spotify or iTunes. And if you could leave me a review, that'd be super awesome. One more time, I'd like to thank our, our sponsors, Booking Protect, the worldwide leaders in booking protection. Um, find out more about how Booking Protect can help you create a better buying experience for your customers and create more peace of mind in the purchase while giving your organization a new stream of revenue by visiting them at www.bookingprotect.com. And until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you again soon. Take care.